Welcome back to Hearness, Contemporary Art Practices for Connecting Body, Place and Space. At Hearness, we acknowledge the deep connection to land and waters by First Nations people all around the world. And this month, for the first episode of 2021, we have the absolute honour of speaking to Peter Swain, who is a Warrumbingo Wiradjuri man and Aboriginal elder of the Daby country in the central west of New South Wales. Peter creates poetry, performances, paintings, education programs, and together with his partner Joe Albany, has recently opened Gulu Gallery in Ralston, where they focus on supporting local artists with an outlet for their work. Working on country where he was born, Peter also brings together communities to work with magic, one another and the land to realise greater connectivity and care for our environment. The heartbeat of the land is the rhythm of my heart. The heartbeat of my ancestors is beating in my heart. The heartbeat of my children is the reason that my heart beats. Life started with a heartbeat. The heartbeat became the song. The singing lit the fire, and the fire shone like the sun. The fire roared, the sun shone, and the plants and trees began to grow. The rivers formed, the lakes filled, and the lifeblood of the land began to flow. And with the plants and the trees, the sun, the rivers and the lakes, the land began to breathe and the animals awake. I'd like to begin by thanking you so much for coming on the Hearness podcast. Would you like to talk a little bit about or um, introduce our listeners to the significance of, of where you're from and your ancestors' importance in the area? Yeah, well, um, I'm a Warabinga Wiradjuri man. My people are the Davy people. Uh, I was born here, I was born in Ralston, uh, and all of my family going back to uh, Queen Peggy were born here in this area. And um, uh, Peggy and Jimmy uh, were the survivors of uh, massacres in the valley, and they survived as young children. And um, the Peggy's children were the um, result of, of rape from the the landowners where they were living. So uh, I'm related to the the people who stole the land and the people who were living on the land previously. So we're not exactly sure who fathered the children, um, but um, we know where she was living at the time. So you, there's a good chance that uh, we know who it was without having any records. So having that connection on both sides, I, I kind of uh, walk a line. I try and walk the line in the middle. You know, so um, I want people to understand uh, who we are and where we come from and the significance of being connected to something that goes back to the beginning of time for people who don't understand that connection. They've... Um, they don't have a connection to anywhere that goes back to the beginning of time. And I think that may be one of those points where uh, the magic is a little bit lost, the magic of um, 
being connected to the land is a little bit lost because they don't understand exactly what uh, that magic is. I was fortunate that my grandfather taught us uh, a lot of things and uh, one of them was um, about the magic of the land. He was um, he used to carry a magic stone in his pocket all the time and um, as we did as children and uh, that was our means of communication. So because we couldn't ring him and we lived in different towns, we could just hold that stone as our way of, of talking to him. So um, as children, you know, we saw it as magic, you know, it was. And um, as an adult, uh, that understanding of the magic uh, grows. I first met you at the last Cementa Festival where you did an opening um, for the festival and a wonderful poem about people connecting to the magic of the land but also contributing their own magic to that to the land and that really touched me um, and inspired me to think about how everybody can contribute to making um, our connection with the landscape deeper. If if you would like to read that poem, it, I think it'd be wonderful for our, for our listeners to have the opportunity to hear it. It's a, it's, a, it's a spoken word artwork, really. Is that how you would describe it? Yep, yep. I, I wrote this one for a, a number of reasons uh, and, uh, and quite a long time ago. And uh, I've... I've changed it and uh, rearranged it and adapted it to to different circumstances. The poem's called "The Magic," and it's about uh, recognizing the the magic that's already there and has always been there, and then uh, putting some magic of your own back. So instead of taking from it, add to it. Yeah, and it's um. The magic has always been here since the very first day and it's our job to take care of it and it's always been that way, you see. Magic has to be nurtured and treated with respect. You take only what's required and you leave whatever's left. But you could see that magic and you wanted it for yourself and you're not the type that shares, not with anybody else. And now, well... Now you've taken all the magic and you've squirreled it away and you've locked it up in banks for a rainy day. But the thing that I find tragic is how you then kneel down and pray, praying that more magic will come your way. Well, it doesn't work that way. No matter what you say, no matter how hard you pray, it doesn't work that way. You see, to keep the magic coming, you've got to put some magic back. You can't just keep on take, take, take the magic doesn't work like that. Thank you. Very special for you to be reading that for, for the show and for our listeners. So thank you so much. Oh, it's a pleasure. Mm. And I think a lot of your, um, this, the work that you're doing now is kind of um, sharing different ways to connect to that magic and contribute to that. Like the, is it the KPT hydrology project you did with KSCA recently? Yeah, we did a, um, we 
did a water ceremony. We performed a water ceremony. Uh, it would have been the first time in uh, nearly 200 years that uh, that ceremony had been done. Traditionally, it would have been done with uh, all the mobs gathering together. And because the Kapiti River starts in our valley, all the tributaries for that start within the valley, and then when it leaves our valley, we would have passed on that ceremony to the people downstream and they would have taken yeah. it with them until eventually the ceremony would have reached the ocean. And, um, and so all the people who are reliant on that river would uh, partake in the ceremony and then uh, pass that ceremony all the way to the ocean. We worked a ceremony or designed a ceremony so it was inclusive of everyone. So we could engage with landholders, with the arts community and, um, and try and get them involved as well because we need everybody on board who is, has a vested interest in the health of the rivers um, for that type of ceremony. And as part of it, we scarred a tree to show the, where the rivers join and where the pool uh, at that point uh, is and then where it leaves the valley. And again, that would have been the first time in nearly 200 years that a tree has been ceremonially scarred in our valley. It sounds fantastic because you all got up at four o'clock in the morning and there's quite a crowd of people, it looks like, from the photographs. Yeah, I had um, one of my brothers drove overnight to be here at four o'clock in the morning. The morning part was just... Uh, family and the people who are involved in setting up the ceremony. So um, uh, the Way Out Artist Group. And as we moved further down the river, we performed ceremonies at different points where different creeks and tributaries joined the river. And then when we got to Glen Alice for our lunch break, that's when we opened it up to the general public. And I think we had around 60 people there for um for the afternoon i find it really um wonderful because the idea of drawing in like the broader community into that into that ritual or the ceremony and adding everybody's intention to that and and i just wondered is that something that you that you think maybe a lot of people that aren't from the area may feel a little bit like, am I really worthy of contributing to this, you know, something of such significance or kind of question their role in this kind of ceremony? Um, I don't think it was people from the area. I think it was uh, involvement in an Aboriginal ceremony that, uh, that as the day wore on, reluctance uh, lessened and lessened to the point where it just became part of the whole. So, um, because when we do it, we do it as a group of individuals, as one. So when we, when we actually do it, we call it one magic. Everybody puts their piece in and you put it in as an individual, but when we come to put the piece in the river, we do it as one. So. Yeah. So then that kind of that individual sense kind of dissolves or that questioning of what am I doing here? Am I worthy of contributing to this Aboriginal ceremony? That kind of dissolves. Yeah. How do I fit in? All that. Mm. Yeah.
I, I joined in on one of the Way Out Artist Group studio visits and I think you were talking about this wanting to do a project that was going over kind of the 12 months and you said there's eight seasons in the year. Um, and is that part of that or is that a separate project? No, it would be part of it. Yeah. Um, we look, I'm looking at this as a much long, a very long-term thing. Uh, so at the moment, we that's really an opening to our ceremonial season by opening the waters. Uh, it's the start of our ceremonial time of year. So traditionally around here, October, you know, but because of COVID, we pushed it out to November. But then in March, we'll do a closing because then we go into our winter and everyone would go back to their, where they're from. And then come October again, springtime, everyone would start coming out again and start meeting up. So, but during the year, we're going to do small uh, outings. We did a few last year where we went to the headwaters of different creeks, just small groups and did a walk. And, and did a very small ceremony. So we, we did um, three of those during the year last year. We'll keep that going as an in-house. And, and if anybody came to visit, if we had a, a, somebody in town as an artist resident or something like that, we would include that as part of it. We had a young girl, uh, Linda Sock. She's doing a, a water uh, thing for her art, thing for Cementa with the crystals. So we went out and did a water ceremony just for her. Yeah, so we will keep it going that way. And then as we can grow this, we will start then inviting uh, the mobs from downstream up you know, and other mobs that have vested interest in the water from this area. And so we can then combine that. And that's when we will get more into that eight seasons of the year festival. That's fantastic that you, you know, at the beginning of kind of reigniting this thing that happened, you know, hasn't been performed for such a long time and that really has ability to kind of bring that into the future. More recently, I, I know that you've been involved with a project called the Mysteries Lab with Critical Path, where they're asking, is there is there a place for magic in contemporary dance and performance. And I understand you're, you're working with that. And um, I'm wondering what's your experience been like working with other artists coming to the area with their forms of magic? And, and then what are, you, what are you actually working on for your part of that project? Um, yeah, I, 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 had, I had a great time. I thought it was fantastic. Yeah, I loved every minute of it because everybody bought something different. They bought their own art form to it. Um, we not all, Most of us weren't dancers, uh, but that didn't matter. It, it was about art and dance for me is a form of art. It's also a form of language. So uh, interpretive dance or, or Aboriginal dance is a form of language. So you're actually telling a story through your dance it was always in the back of your mind. It was always the crux of why we're there was about dance. Mm -hmm. And does is there a place for magic in dance? And for me, it's essential. It's one of the essentials mm -hmm. of dance. 
and and it creates its own. Dance has the ability to create create its own magic you know, mm -hmm. in either the dancer, you know, so or if it was a performance dance, the audience. But from that, we actually formed a dance group. But we used a lot of the things we talked about during the critical lab. It's, it's changed the way I look at my art. Um, I can say that. Whether it's um, more of a flow or more of a, you know, because we talked about connection of movement and things like that. So then, and for me, my artwork, that's a, a big thing. How does this connect with that? How do you take all these, there's a lot of it's random things, and then create one artwork? especially in large mural situations. So how do you take all these different concepts that they want included in a mural, but you, it has to be one visual artwork. So when you stand back, it's an artwork. It's not a, a collage of art. Do you want to talk a little bit about that process of understanding the area and mapping the land? Because um, you've done a lot of um mappings of the of the area i understand and you've worked as a consultant for people that are mapping the area i'm just wondering about your process obviously you have inbuilt knowledge of the land um but when you when you're mapping or you're creating a depiction of something could you talk a little bit about the process of how you go about that i did uh, a lot of mapping when i was living up in the snowy mountains i know that area better because i grew up up there I didn't grow up here and I walked every mountain and uh, canoed every river and fished every river. So from memory, I could map in where they come from. And I've just started yeah. here where I've been uh, walking to the top of the mountains and driving around the valley. So I'll pick one spot and I'll go there and I'll drive it, but I'll look at remnant species of plants, so uh, swamp plants or wet yeah. land plants, right? and then look at the land. So um, remnant swamp will have a different soil structure to uh, grassy woodlands. Yeah. So then I can put into, I can build a mind map that shows me where the water used to be. This valley, here in particular had uh, a lot of hanging swamps, what are called hanging swamps, which are high country swamps. And the springs in the high country or up on top of the mountains have to feed from those swamps. Once we drain them, we slow down the, the, the running of the springs. The springs don't run as fast. Some we stopped altogether. We also then, when the water falls on the land, it doesn't have the sponge effect where it, it builds up water because the, the swamp will hold seven times the amount of water that it shows. And it's supposed to hold that so when we go into our dry season, it will then slowly release to keep the, the rivers moving. It will also filter yeah. the water. But because we drained them, the water runs straight into the river system and then disappears out of our valley. So when it turns to our dry season, we have nothing left to give the rivers so the rivers stop. How did we how did we drain the hanging swamps? They furrowed them. They they cut furrows in them to drain them. Yeah, the early farming, 
early farming methods was to drain the swamps. Yeah. One, they didn't want swamp land because the animals don't like wet feet. Uh, one was drained because they didn't like the mosquitoes. And uh, another one because the school bus couldn't get through. And, but when you, when you look at it and you know the lay of the land, then you can look at it as if you're looking from a topographical map and you can draw it back in. Yeah, so when I'm doing mapping of them, it will. Uh, I'll draw them back in as if they were there. I saw I saw some of your painting during this last Cementa festival um, in the northeast Wiradjuri Cultural Centre, and it seems there's, you know, there's ones that were well. Obviously, there's the wonderful tool making, and you gave us a great um, discussion through kind of the use of different tools, um, but also there's kind of the paintings of the land and the mappings of the land, but then these beautiful skyscapes. Um, and I was wondering, would you like to, to talk about the kind of the difference of working with mapping the land and mapping the sky and how, how you, yeah, how you see those two coming together or are they separate? Um, well, they're not separate, they're one. So we see them, or I see them as one. And our people in the valley down here uh, were known as star people. So um, if you look at the valley in itself, it's the widest canyon in the world. Uh, it's completely uh, ringed by cliffs. It's a horseshoe valley. So there's only one out, which is where the river goes out through the gorge. Uh, so you in effect, if you look at it, you're sitting in a giant satellite dish. So you can actually see the curvature, you can see the curvature of the earth sitting down there. And there's um, stories that we've been told and uh, of how we knew the earth was round, you know, 40,000 years ago without having to walk to the other side. You know, we, we knew the earth was round by the curvature of the sky. So the yeah. sky and the earth are one. I had a fascination for years about painting the night sky. So I practiced for, for years. How do I create that kind of depth that the sky has when you lay there and look at it? So I spent a lot of time in swags camping out and where you lay there looking at the sky. And my grandfather was the same. We used to lay out in the backyard and he would tell, tell us stories. Now, we don't know whether he was making the stories up or, or whether he's, um, these stories are passed down, but it didn't matter. He was a great storyteller. Yeah, I always wanted to be able to paint the night sky. And then it, it took me a lot of practice to figure out how to create that kind of depth. You can, yeah, you can really see, you can really see that depth and it's obviously somewhere where there's a lot more stars than I've ever seen, <laughs> you know, or you have the ability to see much deeper into the sky than, than I've ever experienced. And I wonder about the kind of the geometric shapes that you lay over the night sky. Um, they're lining, so the, uh, the boomerang pattern um, I wanted to create, how do you uh, create the illusion of the boomerang flying? I spent, I, I worked out how to draw the, the lines to create the, um, the spiral effect of the boomerang coming out 
from the depth, from the centre of the, the painting. They're quite architectural in the way that they look, like they're very mathematical um, in the, the kind of precision of the geometries there. Um, so, so it's the movement of the, of the boomerang in the sky. Yeah, yeah. So if, if it's coming, I actually wrote the story, the, the story of the boomerang, um, and it's a rainbow story. And I used that as I was painting a series, the first series in, I've done three series in that uh, series of paintings now. Uh, and the, as I was doing the first one, as I was painting them, the story kept going over in my mind. So eventually Joe and I sat down and, and wrote the story out and, and um, printed it out. We have the, the story printed about how they um, used the boomerang to bring the rainbow to the ground. You could see the, or the magic in the rainbow, but we couldn't get it. It wouldn't come to the ground. They used the boomerang, they, th they danced, they, they threw sticks, they threw stones, they tried everything until um, one bloke with his bent sticks uh, threw them so high that the, it flew. And um, then they asked him to teach the warriors how he made his stick fly. So he taught them and then they went to the top of the mountains and eventually they got one to hook the rainbow and bring it to the ground. And um, the warrior's name was Boomerang. So the guy who invented them, so they called it Boomerang after him. But this is a story I wrote. This isn't a story passed down. And then um, the second series was about the rainbow coming onto the ground. In the third series, I went back to prior to that and painted the animals in the Rainbow River. I've explored that, that thought pattern uh, a lot. And that then leads into a Rainbow Serpent story. Uh, so, yeah, the Rainbow Serpent is when the rainbow came onto the ground and the serpent went through the land and created the, the forms, the lakes, the mountains, the rivers, and things like that. So. It's um, kind of, for me, it's my thought pattern of how did the rainbow actually get onto the ground? Well, thank you for that. When you're working with, with mapping the land and how that feels as compared to mapping the sky, does it make you, does it make you feel different? Like personally for myself, when I'm working with the, with the landscape, and the trees and the forests or the bush, um, I can feel the, a deep connection that sometimes can feel denser and heavier. And with, and with the sky, obviously, is lighter and airier um, and a kind of a spaciousness of kind of no thought or something. I was wondering, do you, do you kind of have a different energetic experience when you're making the the different artworks? Uh, I find a, a greater freedom painting the night, the sky paintings. The, the ground paintings, I put a lot of effort into uh, making sure I have everything in exactly the right spot where as I see it, and then um, even the shaping of the contours, you know, what's steep, what's not, where's the path go. Whereas the sky, it's a much larger, vast area 
and um, I find a, a greater freedom. So as an artist, um, I find it not easier to paint the night sky, but and I wouldn't say enjoyable is not the more enjoyable is not the right phrase either. But I think you understand what I'm saying. It's 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 um, there's a freedom in it in painting the night sky that I don't sit down and I put the stars in exactly the spots where they go. Sometimes I'll paint in a constellation here or there, but I. I'll just create an overview of the whole sky. So whereas with the ground, I get really fussy with um, where things are and, and how they're connected to other things. And the songline mural that you did depicting the walk paths of, I think it's called the, the past, present and future. Yeah, it's in the Ralston Hospital. Yeah, so it's actually using the songline mapping design but if you follow the song line, so the red song line leads you to emergency, the grey one leads you to x-ray, the orange one leads you to physio. Yeah, so and then I've painted a map, a legend, so you read the legend as you're going in. And so then people just look at the thing and it goes on the, the wall, it's on the wall of the hospital and it goes to um, every different department. So you just follow that song line, yeah, which was a really, um, it was a really cool uh, experience because I was born in that hospital. So to be given the opportunity to then uh, paint the mural in the hospital, and um, first up they asked me to paint one on plywood, and, and I said, well, you've got brand new walls here. Why don't we just paint it on the wall? And I, I didn't think they would, and um, but yeah, they agreed, and and. Uh, so, yeah, the whole brand new, after the refurb of the hospital, the whole, all the brand new walls have these amazing coloured lines all over them. And and, um, and it's large, it's really big. Like some of them are ones that are like 120 metres long or something, song line. And the, and the process, I understand people can put their fingerprints on it. Is that still, or was that was that during the kind of creation of it in the beginning or is that an ongoing thing? I hope it's an ongoing thing. It was it was a creation thing that all the staff and we also got all the patients who were, especially the ones who are in the aged care. Um, there's a permanent aged care facility there and all the staff and, and put their fingerprint on it. And the idea was that as a new staff member joins, they would put their fingerprint on. You know, so it's kind of like signing on and, and having ownership to, to be able to put your mark on it and then it's in your workplace. It gives that person the thought pattern is that they then have ownership in the, in the place. Hmm. But yeah, that, seem, that seems to be a kind of reoccurring theme in your work is this kind of giving people a sense of ownership in, in the kind of the land or the creation of the place that they're in um and how they can contribute to that and you you kind of do that in lots of different ways in your work yeah i think that's very important i think people respond to that you know? and i've done a lot of murals in schools and we designed those murals that way and we found and some of them were in particularly uh, hard areas so uh we found that um the murals we created where we uh 
put ownership back into the, the students weren't getting graffitied or damaged. And some of them have been going for quite a long time now. So there would be students who started in kindergarten who put their finger down at the tail of the, the eel have, and now gone on to high school. So they would have had their fingerprint in every part of the mural all the way up to the head of the eel and, and then moved on to high school. It's a growth story. So it's their growth through the school. Um, and it's also ownership in being part of that school. Because you've worked with schools and the education programs for a long time, it seems. Yeah, about 15 years. Um, and I'm, I'm still working in, in schools. I work out at Golgong High. So doing a mentoring program there with uh, boys that are at risk of slipping through the, the cracks or have behavioural issues for whatever reason. So how's that going? It's hard. It's very hard. Yeah. So it, it, it's very hard to make a connection in such a very short period of time. You know, some, most of the other schools I've worked in over a 10 year period. So I've, I've, I've worked with the children all the way through primary school and most of the way through high school. So you know them and you have a rapport with them. Hmm. I noticed in your CV you have an experience of working um, in residencies um, around the country and also overseas. And I'm just wondering, would you would you talk a little bit about how how do you work when you're outside of Australia in a in a different context? Do you do you continue to work with the land in in that place where you are, or different communities there? What have, what have you done in your residencies? Um. It started with uh, when I was working out in far western Victoria. I went out there. I was caretaking, caretaker manager at a nature reserve, and um, we had two visitors come into the the park. Uh, oh, there was three of them at the time, uh, and they were from Germany, and they were studying in Austria, and they'd studied at the Vienna School of Fine Arts at the Museum of Fine Arts. And so uh, they came for, for two nights and ended up staying for three weeks. And we put together, we worked together and put together a volume of work. I was doing a sand art project using the, the sand from the desert. And um, they wanted to work in that as well. So we put together a whole volume of work. We had an exhibition at the end of it. Um, but we talked about the business of art. So yeah, it's fine to be an artist, but you still have to make a living. So there has to be a business side to it. And how do we, how do we as artists uh, go around that and give ourselves the ability to be able to do these like residencies and things like that. So we actually formed our own art group. Um, and there was only three of us in it and we've built it up now. I think there's now the last one we had in Italy. I went to Italy for six weeks and, we, yeah. and there was uh, eight of us all gathered. Yeah. So we had one from 
Israel, one from Iran, uh, one from Norway, uh, Finland, not Norway, um, two from Germany, one from Austria. Yeah, and um, yeah, I can't remember where else, but all over the world. And um, but just people that, you know, we've met from different things. And um, so every two years, we were going to get together somewhere in the world. So um, we picked a festival and we went to that festival as artists and uh, performed at that festival. So that's um, two of the trips overseas I've done, that one. And the, the one to Chile, I went to Patagonia and I was working with the First Nations artist there that I knew, I knew him from Canberra. Uh, so I went over and worked with him. I actually didn't tell him I was coming. I turned up unannounced and I worked with him for five weeks to help him put his exhibition together. Um, but his was based on the First Nations people from where he's from. And he's, he's a First Nations person from there. And um, so we worked together and collaborated uh, on music. We put together a, a whole music thing. We actually played nearly every um, place in that town. Uh, we, we put on an opening night at his exhibition where we, uh, so we had a flute player, Lithuanian flute player, uh, two from Patagonia, a guitarist, father and daughter, and a ditch player from Australia. Fantastic. Because you, in your spoken word as well, um, is that something that kind of comes from gathering information in lots of different places and then bringing it together, or do, does that come through more as a flow of of writing? Or No, I, I have to work it out in my head before I write it down. Um, if I write it down, I lose it. Uh, it's, it usually comes from a thought. Uh, I, I wrote a new one and, and I, I performed it the other day, but I had one thought pattern uh, stuck in my head and, um, and it was um, one day someone will come along and that someone will sing the right song and then the people will start to understand. And, um, it's about the land, so. but it's more about, I don't think people, un, it's like in the magic poem, I don't think people actually understand. You know, they're, yeah. they're repeating mistakes. And I think right up to government level. And the thought pattern was, you know, so when the people understand how to work with, not from the land, how to live in, not on the land, then the land will understand. And when the land understands that the people in the land are working hand in hand, it can start to breathe again and the land will live again and then the land can give again. So it was about the fires, you know. So the trees at the moment uh, are all covered in epicormic growth from the trunks of the trees and all along the branches it grows out leaves. Now the, that tree is, is producing leaves that cover the whole trunk of the tree just to keep photosynthesis going until a new canopy can form. So it can keep the 
oxygen for us to live. So that thought pattern of the land will breathe again. When will we understand? How do you think, what do you think can help people understand? Are there any kind of processes or um, practices that you would encourage to, to, for people to have this deeper connection with the land? Um, I think education in schools. There's an older generation that I don't think we can educate and train. Some will. I think that's a generation away. So what we're actually teaching kids in schools at the moment, I don't think we will see the, the uh, results of that. It's a generational change, mm. I think. And we have, we're going to have a change, not of government, but of the system of government. Changing the captain and crew on the Titanic after it hit the iceberg would not have saved the boat. Most of what we're doing is not required. Our great resources boom, you know, creating all these millions of jobs. It's, it's not required. There's plenty of other jobs out there that could pay a, a living wage that aren't involved in the resources boom, that aren't involved in, um, in mining. The coal we're using to produce electricity here is only like a tenth of what we produce. So we're not even using it. We keep saying it, we need it for our electricity, but we're selling it more overseas. And television is the only one telling us we need more electricity. And that's because yeah. television needs electricity. We don't need it, they do. <laughs> I mean, and to be able to buy the river, you can buy, you, you can't buy the river as the land, but the government separated water from the land. So you can actually buy the water from the river. So you can buy the whole river the water, you can't buy the land that the river's on. So they separated them in legislation so that uh, you know, where they're growing cotton and rice, they can buy the whole river. Yeah, I mean, how do you separate the river from the riverbed? You know, like, you know, yeah, it just doesn't make sense. It, I think it's about economy, it's, the, it's only the economy not about people's lives or, or what's required. It's about, have, I guess, teaching the kids to have a broader perspective of, of like you're talking about, this greater interconnectivity of things, how it's all feeding in and impacting um, to make kind of wiser choices rather than just following what you think, what you think you've been told you need to have. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Look at it, look at the bigger picture, you know, exactly what's required you know, to sustain life, you know, food and water and oxygen. They're the three main things. The rest, shelter and all that, sort of comes down the track. And as far as I know, animals live for free. Plants and trees grow for free. Water used to be free and the air we breathe is free. So, you know, what's all this economy about? We hope you've enjoyed this conversation with Peter Swain. All links to his work, references discussed in the show and social media links can be found on hearness.org. The sound for this month's episode 
comes from a performance with the didgeridoo and a reading of the heartbeat poem by Peter Swain. We shall leave you with this now. Until next new moon, goodbye. The heartbeat of the land is the rhythm of my heart. The heartbeat of my ancestors is beating in my heart. The heartbeat of my children is the reason that my heart beats. Life started with a heartbeat. The heartbeat became the song. The singing lit the fire and the fire shone like the sun. The fire roared, the sun shone and the plants and trees began to grow. The rivers formed, the lakes filled and the lifeblood of the land began to flow. And with the plants and the trees, the sun, the rivers and the lakes, the land began to breathe and the animals awake. Awakening. He opened his eyes and he took a breath. The heart of his mother beats in his chest. A life so new and so fresh is awakening. Unbroken. He was born onto his mother's land, born to a people and part of a clan whose story continues from when time began. Unbroken. Culture. He learnt from his mothers his stories and songs, all the plants and the foods that will make him grow strong, of law and of land and of how he belongs. That's culture. Unspoken. They shot his father, they shot his mother, all his uncles and aunts and his sisters and brothers. There was only two left, they had massacred the others. unspoken. Heartbreaking. First as a child and then as a man he was forced to work for the people who had murdered his clan. It seems the reward for murder is the possession of land. Heartbreaking. Tokens. They gave him a breastplate. They made him a king took his wife and his daughters, they were theirs at their whim, and they bowed as they laughed and ridiculed him. Tokens. Stolen. He died, alone, lee broken old man, with no one to comfort him, holding his hand, as he dreams about a life and a land. Stolen. Passing. He goes now into the arms of his clan, back to a people who he understands where life and law are one with the land. Passing. Genocide. But it doesn't end there because as part of the theft, the papers reported that upon his death he was the last of his people. There is no one left. That's genocide. Alive. So where do I stand? What about me? He's my great-great-great-grandfather, so how can that be? Seems the genocide that was sought was not quite complete. Alive. Unbroken. I was born onto my mother's land with all of my people from when time began, 
and our story continues to grow and expand unbroken. Culture. I tell my stories and I sing my song of land and of people and how we belong. My connection to country is what makes me strong. That's culture. Awakening. My eyes are open and as I breathe, the heart of my ancestors beating in me, a people so old and so free, are awakening.